Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. Canadian veterans, Canadian Armed Forces veterans. And the fact that uh, there's a class action lawsuit, the Equitas lawsuit underway in British Columbia at the moment with veterans charging the federal government, not responsibly looking after their needs and not living up to the arrangement and the, and the, um, and the um, I guess it's a rule that existed, a moral rule that existed, the government was responsible morally for the men and the women in uniform who risked and often gave their lives. And it was Prime Minister Robert Borden who in 1917 said to the troops, you need have no fear that the government of the country will fail to show just appreciation of your service, and the government and the country will consider it their first duty to prove to returned men its just and due appreciation for the inestimable value of the service rendered to the country. That was before the Battle of Mimi Ridge. And now we have men and women of our armed forces coming home from battle, terribly wounded, injured, and not receiving what they require, and not willing to put up with it. And it's been a debate point in this country far too long. And so now, as we said, there's the Equitas lawsuit, and we've talked about that on a number of occasions on the program, including having Don Sorokin, the lawyer who is handling the case for the ex-military members, pro bono, because it would be awfully expensive. And the federal government can just use your tax dollars and my tax dollars to fight the, the veterans in court. They have all the money they need. It's yours and it's mine. My affection and my concern and my caring is for the men and the women in uniform. And I know just from checking at at the Roy Green Show on our Twitter account, many of you are feeling exactly the same way. So joining me on the show, and we spoke with him a week ago yesterday on Remembrance Day, is uh, Major uh, Ken Campbell, PCLI, lost his legs in an IED attack in Afghanistan and uh, living the, the reality of government indifference and what it does to the men and the women and particularly to, to him and his family after the tragic events that he endured. Major Campbell, good to speak with you again. Uh, good to be here, Roy. Also with me is John Brassard, a conservative member of parliament, and he has a private member's bill, C-378, which would largely rectify the situation for Canada's harmed while on duty Armed Forces members. Mr. Brasser, good to talk to you. Hi, Roy. How are you doing today? Well, I'm doing fine. How are you doing? Very good, thank you. Uh, Major Campbell, let me begin with you. Can you just remind us of the situation that you're facing from the federal government as you continue with the Equitas class action lawsuit against the government? Um, Sure, Roy. We... um um, the, the the gist of the, the the lawsuit is is that um, 
we believe that uh, veterans of uh, the newer, our new generation of veterans since uh, 1st of April 2006 are, um, are being discriminated against um, on the basis of uh, financial compensation for, uh, for injuries, uh, wounds accrued uh, in service to, to the Crown. And the, the, the fundamental issue is about a 40% discrepancy uh, in, in, in the amount of financial compensation that's available to uh, disabled um, soldiers, sailors, airwomen, airmen, um, under the so-called New Veterans Charter, as opposed to the former Pension Act, which ceased in, uh, in 2006. So a 40% reduction in our disability uh, during the war in Afghanistan, while we were fighting the war, and uh, the powers that be didn't really bother to tell us or educate us about the implications of that New Veterans Charter. And it wasn't until we were in our hospital beds uh, recovering from our wounds in battle or received in battle that we, we, we came to realize that we'd been financially stiffed in, 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 in the process. Um, and, and so we've, we've, we've got this, this ludicrous situation in Canada now where we've got soldiers um, with the same injuries arising from the same war, but because of an arbitrary date set in the middle of it for a change in legislation, are receiving fundamentally different levels of financial compensation for the same wounds, same war. I mean, it's, it's just, it's unconscionable. You know, you try to wrap your head around it, and it's just bizarre. What's it do to your life? Well, I mean, the sense of betrayal was, 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 was staggering. I, you know, I would argue that uh, to, to whatever extent I have psychological injuries, they arise from the moral injury of having been betrayed by the very institution that I served loyally for 32 years. Moreover, or more so than uh, than the wounds I received, um, I would argue that my my PTSD and my my issues at night, kicking and fighting, uh, being backed into a corner in my dreams are are all about being backed into a corner by my very own government. Mm-hmm. Mr. Brassard, uh, first of all, congratulations or thank you for having the interests of the veterans at heart with your private members legislation. You just heard the major. You know what the situation is. You point out in, uh, in, in a release from, from your office that it was uh, Prime Minister David Cameron of the United States, or United States, of the United Kingdom, who uh, entrenched a sacred obligation with its military. And so he was the first one right. to put it in writing. So when you know what's going on in Canada, when you hear Major Campbell... First of all, what effect does that have on you, and and uh, and what does your what does your legislation do to change it? Well, I, first of all, uh, um, it's good to hear Mark uh, again, and Mark and I have met on many occasions uh, uh, in my role as critic for Veterans Affairs. And uh, you're quite right. You know, I, I found it interesting when you read about uh, Sir Robert Borden's address to the troops mm-hmm. just ahead of Vimy Ridge, speaking about this sacred obligation. Uh, you know, I take this very personal, Roy. I in my role as critic for Veterans Affairs, I traveled across the country. I met with veterans. I met with the Equitas group. I met with stakeholders. I met with veterans' families. And they had all uh, talked to me about this sacred obligation, this uh, military covenant uh, that Canada, at least at one point, seemed to have back in 1917 when Sir Robert Borden addressed those troops. And uh, over the past hundred years, there seems to be a diminishing um, obligation on the part of government, all governments, and I'm not just saying that this is a conservative, liberal, NDP, NDP issue, but on the, on the part of all govern, uh, governments that has disconnected uh, between what I think the people of Canada feel and the people of Canada feel that there is that moral and that sacred obligation on the part of uh, all of Canada, including its governments, to 
look after our veterans, and that's what I'm trying to address. So, what would you? What is your legi- What does your legislation call for to change the situation from what uh, Major Campbell described to us? Right. Well, I think you know you go back to uh, what the United Kingdom did under Prime Minister David Cameron, and they were. You're quite right. They were the first and only country in the world to establish a military covenant uh, with its uh, with its veterans. And so, what I'm hoping to do is to take the principles of what was established in England and uh, entrench them into legislation here in Canada through uh, amendments to the Veterans Affairs Act. And so what I'm hoping to do is that veterans and their dependents and survivors be treated with the dignity to respect and fairness that they require, understanding that there's a uniqueness of uh, veterans' duties, the sacrifices, and the impact to their families, and that decisions regarding care, treatment, and transition to civilian life be made in a timely manner. So what I'm hoping to do by entrenching this in legislation is not just make it some aspirational uh, saying on the walls of Veterans Affairs uh, headquarters. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that this obligates every single government from this point forward, every single Minister of Veterans Affairs, everybody that works within the bureaucracy, to, to make sure that they look after our veterans. Yeah, no, I understand that. But mm-hmm. you're going to have to get governments or get the current government and, and other MPs to go along and, and sign on. And then there has to be a tangible response, a tangible benefit to veterans like Major Campbell. Major Campbell, what do you, what, what do you think of uh, what uh, John Brassard is doing and what has to follow that? Well, I think it's a, I think it's a very welcome initiative, uh, first and foremost, and I, I thank John for 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 putting that forward on, as a private member's bill. Um, <clears throat> I think a, um, a covenant between a formal covenant between uh, the government of Canada and its and its veteran population uh, would serve as a as a timely reminder of of that sacred obligation that we refer to. Mm-hmm. Um, because I I do agree with uh, with with Mr. Broussard that uh, there has been uh, perhaps a, a diminishing of 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 not, not necessarily appreciation, certainly not on the part of the people of Canada, but of the government of Canada um, for its veterans, and a desire to to avoid long-term financial obligation in the form of uh, of uh, lifelong pensions, in in particular for disabled soldiers. It's really so, too bad that we're talking about this. It's well, so it, sad it that we have to talk about this. That there isn't automatically in place. What Sir Robert Borden said was in place in 1917. It's too bad that governments and successive governments have decided, no, we don't have a moral obligation. We don't have a a social contract with our men and women in uniform. It really is sad that that's the reality. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, For members of Parliament, there is an exceptionally rich pension that awaits them. And the only thing that the veterans are asking for fairness and consideration and not to be pushed aside. Uh, I'd like to have the Member of Parliament's view of Mr. Trudeau finding $10.5 million for Omar Khadr, Mr. Brassard. Uh, $10.5 million for Khadr, but no, we're going to go to court and we're going to fight our own military for appropriate pensions and benefits. Well, and I don't uh, think that's apples and oranges. It's uh, it's as ridiculous as you make it uh, sound. Uh, you know, uh, by precluding, I don't understand how the Trudeau government could preclude any decision of any court uh, based on the fact that they just simply rolled over on Mr. Catter. Uh, and you're quite right. I mean, why should our why should our veterans uh, continue to fight uh, their government in court, especially after Mr. Trudeau stood up in Belleville? 
uh, with veterans and uh, uh, members of his own caucus now who uh, were ex-military members and said uh, specifically and point blank that no veteran should ever fight its government in court. And yet here we are, uh, the Equitas Group continues the litigation and uh, was held in abeyance by uh, former Minister of Veterans Affairs, as you know, Aaron O'Toole, uh, there was uh, work proceeding to come up with a negotiated uh, agreement. I remember uh, that, yeah. With the Equitas Group. And when the abeyance agreement uh, subsided uh, in May of 2016, the first thing the Trudeau government did was start uh, the court case all over. You know, uh, with, with all due respect, I know I bring up Mr. Trudeau. This isn't about turning one political party, making them look mm-hmm. better than another. It's mm-hmm. about the it's about taking care of our, our, our veterans. And your private member's bill certainly begins the process in a very significant manner by establishing that there has to be respect. Major Campbell, what about that aspect of, of things? Here you are, and you explain to us on Remembrance Day, you explain to us what it is, uh, that how it's affecting your life, and what you said a little earlier in, in greater detail because we had more time. Uh, but at the same time, Mr. Trudeau can find $10.5 million for Mr. Cotter, and he can explain it away as though all Canadians are responsible for what happened to uh, to Cotter, and that maybe if he uh, if he makes the payment, first of all he'll save us money, and secondly he'll remind us not to not to treat Canadians improperly. The irony is inescapable. Yeah, it, uh, I mean, I, I mean, it certainly it, it cuts. There's no there's no question about it. And and on top of the 10.5 million for Omar Cotter, of course, is the 30 million for the other three gentlemen um, who were who were held in. Uh, that's right. In, uh, prison overseas. So um, this this seems, and and then we've got a fifty million dollar lawsuit pending. And another one coming, yeah. Government from from yet another uh, another uh, asylum seeker. So um, yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's an interesting situation to say the least. I mean, those those tens of millions of dollars could go an awfully long way um, to support some of the needs of particularly our our, our, our more junior veterans, uh, the ones who are are seriously disabled, and there aren't many of them, um, but who are tied to you know. Uh, an income of about fifty-seven thousand dollars a year for the rest of their lives. Um, try to raise a family and and you know kids and send them off to university and do all those things that you want to do as a parent, um, including you know finding a finding a significant other and getting married and, and and all that. And you can't do it when your when your income is 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 literally you know a couple thousand dollars above the low income cutoff in Canada. And you can't do it when the court when the when the government's fighting you in court to deny you just what uh, common decency. Would su- suggest they are at least committed to. Yeah, and that 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 that's really the 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 part that that rubs us uh, the wrong way is is the fact that uh, for whatever reason the Liberal government elected immediately, uh, notwithstanding what the Prime Minister had explicitly said, um, they they chose to take us back to uh, back to court in uh, in in in, uh, in May of 2016. Right. So. Um, yeah, that 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 whole thing came as a bit of a surprise, and then to have the federal lawyers fall back on the exact same argument right. that they tried the first time, um, uh, with, that is that is that Canada has no duty of, of of particular obligation to its its veterans. Okay, Major Campbell, I have to stop because, you know, it's the end of the segment. But I, as always, I th- I really appreciate you coming on, uh, Mr. Brassard. Good luck with the private members legislation. We'll watch it carefully. Listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. What rights should mom and dad have to know about the decisions their kids make? What rights? 
20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, certainly 50 years ago, you wouldn't have asked that question. It would have been inconceivable to ask that question. I know it's all progress. Everybody's happier. Everybody's better off. Everybody's doing better. Moms are not at home anymore, you know, and taking care of the kids. Oh, that's antiquated. That's prehistoric. That's Fred Flintstone world. But um, stuff is going on. Things are changing. And it was probably 15, 15 years ago, something like 15 years ago, that we had a series of programs when the show was airing only in Ontario, my, my Monday to Friday show at the time, a series of programs that had people just absolutely up in arms. And the, the issue was a 12-year-old girl could be pregnant and opt for an abortion without her parents being informed. If the 12-year-old child was pregnant and she didn't want her parents informed, then the parents would not be informed. And the, the whole argument for the first, <laughs> the first couple of days, I remember, people would call and be so upset about that particular piece of legislation, and rightly so. But then I said, well, wh what about any sort of concern that a 12-year-old is pregnant? Anyway, the parents were not allowed to know if the child didn't want the parents to know. And it would, what 12-year-old child would want parents to know? They, they need the parents' support, but they don't want the parents to know. And so they weren't allowed. And that's the law. It wasn't the law just 15 years ago. It's the law now. It's not just the law in the province of Ontario. I believe it's national. Now, I've done some, as much checking as I, as I could on this, and it's certainly multi-provincial. So that's one. And then uh, this past week in Alberta, new legislation was passed, pushed through by the NDP government, which allows students in schools to join gay-straight alliances without their parents being informed. And one of the vocalized concerns was that children may be stigmatized at home. Really? Seriously? Can't trust those parents, huh? The children would be stigmatized at home. So the, so the, the reflexive response is mom and dad are not going to love their child. No, they're going to judge their child. And I know what's going to be said is, no, no, we, we, we mean that some of them might. Bullocks. You know exactly what you're saying. And mother and dad, mom and dad are being taken out of the picture. And you're allowing it to happen. Now, I don't understand why you're allowing it to happen. Because they're your kids. And somebody said to me, well, look, parents drop their kids off at the daycare when the child's a year or two old. So they really don't care about the children as much as parents did 40 or 50 years ago. I know, you're, I know the short hairs on the back of your neck are standing up. That was a position taken by somebody talking to me about this. I don't know if that has validity. We'll open the phone line shortly. Scott Taylor is with me, Vancouver family lawyer, one of the best in the business, and a good friend of mine. <laughs> oh, thank you, Roy. Nice to, uh, nice to be back. Well, it's great to have you back, and I, I always go to you. You're my go-to person for the issues that are legally important, but also have a, a, human, com a human component. Well, thank along you, with Roy, it. and... and <laughs> 
your first comment about the outrage that parents felt a number of years ago with with a twelve year old girl who was who was um, pregnant. I, I have to say, and it is national, by the way, just so that people aren't surprised by this. But in every province in Canada, with two exceptions, and that's Quebec and New Brunswick, there is no minimum age required for a child to talk to his or her physician and totally within the discretion of the physician without any information or consent required of the parents can make a decision that they believe is in this particular child's best interests. Now, I don't know about you, Roy, but in five minutes in my doctor's office, it's probably a challenge for any doctor to decide what's in anyone's best interests on the basis of a visit of five minutes or less. Because they're thinking, with no disrespect to the doctors, they're already thinking about the next appointment, as they were thinking about yours with the past appointment. <laughs> well, but... And, and, and no, I can't it, do it, it in five minutes. No, no, and the irony is it, they have to decide. You know, this puts a lot of pressure on the physician, you know, right. to, de- to make a decision that they believe is in this child's best interests when, and again, that puts a lot of pressure on doctors, and doctors can't, like, they are restricted from even calling the parents or talking to the parents about this procedure yeah. without the consent of the 12-year-old, child. of the child. It, 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 and it's one of these, like military intelligence, it's one of these oxymorons. In B.C., they're called mature minors. Oh. They're, that's what they're called. They're called mature minors. But they're not, but, Scott, they're not mature minors until something proves their immaturity. Well, <laughs> and, and you know what, by then, right, it may be too late. But we have, we have laws to prevent children from driving before the age of 16. Right. We don't allow children to drink or smoke before the age of majority. They don't enter the adult justice system until they reach 18, and, they, and here in B.C., they can't get married. And, and if you're under 19, you can't get married in B.C. without the consent of your parents. So with all these laws in place, we still say, you know what? At any age, you can come in, see a doctor, get a procedure, and your parents don't have to know. And I, I just think, I think, Roy, it's, a, it's an insult it shows disrespect to parents and i I think it's uh and i think uh, because a lot of it is is not known to people yeah to parents yeah no it marginalizes the family unit yeah as well and i recall when this particular piece of legislation was passed in ontario it was the child service protection act something like that by the bob ray government uh if a child wanted an abortion 12 year old and the 12-year-old went to see the family doctor, and the family doctor decided it was not in the child's best interest. The child could then call for, uh, it, it was something like a family interventionist. Yeah. And that person would then go to the doctor's office and represent the child's interests in the conversation with the doctor, <laughs> and God forbid the parents would get involved because they'd have to get another child <laughs> representative in. I'm not making that up. Yeah. Well, and, and what strikes me as surprising is that if you're a child and the first doctor doesn't give you the decision you're looking for, then find one that will. No. I, mean, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, I don't think there may not even be a need to find someone representing the child, but it, it, it gets back to respect for the parents. See, I, I, I believe, as you do, that, that the parents should be the ultimate support 
for the child. And if the child is going through stressful times, requiring medical care, medical support, whatever it is, then the child, the best interest of the child is best served within the family. And, and that's the part that, you know, the authorities are just finding a way to intervene. And, of course, if the child does go off the rails at some point, <laughs> who gets the blame? Mom and Dad. Well, of course they do. Yeah, of course they do. That, that, that's ultimately their responsibility. But they're not giving, they're, they're, they're given their responsibility but not the authority. Oops. And this is, this is what is so, I believe it's outrageous. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Scott Taylor, um, family lawyer in Vancouver. In Alberta, Bill 24 forces all schools yeah. to permit gay-straight alliances to be formed, and teachers at school and school administrators may not inform parents their child has joined a gay-straight alliance unless the child is at risk of harm. And one of the main reasons parents are permitted to know is that the NDP government worries that the child or children who may join a gay-straight alliance may be subjected to harassment at home. So another example of parents under immediate suspicion. So if you were representing, and there are parents who are going to challenge this legislation or going to appeal it, uh, if you're representing them, what's the argument? Well, (laughs) you know... We're talking about the best interest test, and that should always be the, the the predominant test in any decisions involving our children. You know, firstly, I believe a child should be entitled to join any group they want. But the, the part that I find most disturbing about this is the fact that, and again, we're not talking about teachers phoning phoning up parents and, and reporting that a child has joined a gay straight alliance. That's not, I don't believe that's not what we're talking no, about. No, no, that's not what we're talking but we're, about. But we're saying if a parent contacts uh, a school official or asks a question of a school official about this, the school official is prohibited from talking about this. Like, it's a, I mean, <laughs> that's the part that I find, why are authorities putting themselves in this position? You know, this is a situation like all these others that we're talking about, where we want dialogue between children and parents that's i whether whether and you know that dialogue roy as a parent that dialogue is sometimes very difficult and very very challenging but whether it's positive or negative dialogue is better than stifling dialogue and that's what authorities seemed to do they get in they must things up they stifle it and then if anything bad happens they scurry away. Do you know, and, and but I, now, Scott, now, par- parent-teacher night probably is going to consist of the parents and the teachers comparing what TV shows they watch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, well yeah. They're not allowed to talk about the kids anymore. Right. No, that, that's right. That, that, that's absolutely right. Um, and, and this, it makes a mockery of, of what parents, uh, of the, the mandate of parents in today's society uh, is being undermined by these rules, these these ridiculous rules, and yet we continue down that path, Roy. And, but we, and allow, yeah, we allow it to happen. Yeah, that's right. We <laughs> allow it. Right. We the say, okay, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, you must be right, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, nobody, and again, this particular law, as you indicated, apparently will be will be challenged. It'll be interesting to see what happens as a result. But in the meantime, uh, it's. It's going. I believe it's passed, or it's about to pass. It's passed. It's passed, and, yeah. and, and so these parents, 
if you know if, if they can't be informed, they can't be advised, they can't be part of the dialogue, and I, I think that's a shame. I, I think uh, I think Roy, the strongest support for any child, whether it's a medical issue, whether it's a lifestyle issue, whether it's a uh, a criminal issue, it, it demands, it, it, it screams for the involvement of the parents. Yeah, and you know, Scott, there are, there are people who almost feel the need to apologize if they challenge this kind of legislation. Yeah. Gee, I don't want you to think bad of me. I don't want you to think yeah. that I'm some sort of Neanderthal. I don't want you to think badly. No, it, no just don't even go there. Just right. tell them the, the legislation is unacceptable to you because you're a parent. And that's the name of that term. If you're, yeah. if you're a parent and, and, and your child's teacher is a family friend, you get together as family friends, is, is, is the child's uh, activities and performance at school just a taboo subject? Can you yeah. not talk about that anymore? It's become yeah. really repressive, and it helps no one. Yeah, that's true. Right. And, and the view. biggest shame of all is it helps the child the least. Of all. Yeah. Mr. Taylor, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, and uh, we will do so continuously. Your, <laughs> like, week, your weekends are no longer yours. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to hear. Likewise, Roy, looking forward to it. All, all right, right, Scott, take good care. Scott you Taylor, too. family Bye-bye. lawyer in Vancouver. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Earlier this week, I was uh, reading a story on globalnews.ca, and it had to do with a 50-year-old man in um, Louisiana, Baton Rouge, a 65-year-old man in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He was being released, the story was out on Tuesday, he was being released on Wednesday after 50 years in prison. He was convicted of a rape that he did not commit. So he spent 50 years of his life in prison for a crime he did not commit. And that would have to be one of the most terrifying realities of life, to be incarcerated for something you didn't do. There are quite a few stories in this country. David Milgard comes to mind. Spent a lot of time speaking with Mrs. Milgard before David's mother, uh, before he was released. And then subsequently, we talked to David uh, a couple of times on the program so I got in touch with Wynne Warrer at uh, Innocence Canada, the Innocence Canada Project. It used to be AIDWIC. And they do tremendous work in assisting people who are in prison, who they agree have a case to make that they have been imprisoned wrongly. And uh, Wynne put me in touch with Anthony Hannemeyer. And first she told me a bit about Anthony's story, and it's... Uh, it's, it's, it's terrifying because it could happen to anybody. It could, you know, a wrongful conviction and a, a wrongful charge and arrest and then prison could happen to anybody in this country who's innocent. The wrong sets of circumstances and uh, you become the person who is the interest of the justice system and the justice system is often neither justice nor a system and, uh, and you become a victim. Anthony Hannemeyer was one of those people. Anthony, thank you for taking the time. You're welcome. So uh, the, 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 the story begins with a 15-year-old who was sexually assaulted in her bedroom in the Toronto area. And uh, her mom walks in and she confronts the, 
the would-be rapist, and they stare at each other, and uh, then the the rapist screams and and leaves, runs away, and the mother decides that she's going to become get involved with investigating what happened to her daughter. And would you pick up the story there? How did you at that point? How did you become involved? When when did the focus shift to you? Uh, actually, let me correct you because it was just charged with breaking and entering assault. It was like an attempt to rape. Okay. Um, so it wasn't actual uh, sexual assault. But uh, the cops knocked on my door um, December something, and I don't remember the date. I don't recall that. And they charged me with break, enter, and assault. Uh, they arrested me. Um, I got released on bail. Um, but how did it? How did this? How did the uh, the long arm of the law reach out for you? How did you get involved with it? At what point? I mean, what what connected you supposedly with that case? Um, what she did, the mother did, was did it her own investigation. She called around construction companies and asked if they had a blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy working in the area. And they happened to call a construction company that I was working for at the time. Well, I actually wasn't working there at the time. I quit. But they came up with my name, and she ran with my name because I was the only blonde-haired, blue-eyed, apparently, in the area working. Okay. So she decided... She had your name, and she was going to do something with that information. Yes. So she goes um, to the police. Yes. Um, actually, she was dating a police officer at the time, so she's the one that told him about it and um, started the process of, I guess, charging me with uh, this charge. So when the police come to your door, what happens? What do they say to you? How How, how does it proceed from a knock on your door to the point that you're arrested. Um, knock on the door and they asked me my name and I told them and they said you're under arrest for break, enter, and assault with a weapon. And I was dumbfounded because I have sure. no idea what they're talking about because I didn't do the charge. And they took me to the Toronto Police Station and proceeded to charge me with it and I was telling them, like, well, you got the wrong guy. Like, it's not me. But no matter how I persisted, they ended up charging me with that charge. We we see quite often, uh, if it's a, a documentary of what goes on in a police station, when someone is brought in and is charged or they, they're contemplating whether they're going to charge, the, the person they're interested in is sitting in a chair in a small room and there's one or two police officers who, uh, I'll use the word badgering, are trying to convince, intimidating, convince this this person that it's in your best interest to confess and do it now. Is that what happened to you? They were trying, uh, yes. Um, They were very persistent, very uh, dominating in that room, Um, very intimidating, telling me, you know, we know it's you, you might as well just confess to the charge and, you know, save yourself a lot of trouble and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, um, I didn't give in because I'm not charged with it. I didn't do the charge. Um, They ended up charging me with it, and they ended up taking me to Toronto Jail. 
Um, a few days later, um, I got bail, and they still persisted on me taking the charge. So did, did it not enter their minds that maybe they should do a little more investigating to find out whether you might be the guy? Mind. They had it in their mind that it was me, and they weren't looking anywhere else. And all the time you're telling them, hey, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. Go find the right guy. Yes. Um, and they're telling even the you. Date, even the date in question, I at the time was married, and I was with my ex-wife home that night. That didn't matter. But it didn't matter. How were you feeling? How my how was I feeling? Yeah. Uh, I was young, pretty scared. Yeah. Um, to be charged with something like this. Um, yeah, I was lost. Really afraid. Man, I don't see how you wouldn't how you how you couldn't possibly be, because they were talking. I I don't know. I wasn't there, and I you and I had a little conversation this morning, but we didn't talk about this. That I'm going to ask you now. They did they uh, did the police kind of dangle the prison sentence or prison prison term in front of you? Yeah, they uh, said something about uh, you could do a lot of time. You're going to end up in federal prison, and you know what they do to people like you in federal prison? Um, they'll destroy you. They don't like people like you. So yeah. Something else to be scared of, or terrified about. Yeah. Did you have? Enough. You had a lawyer, right? Eventually. Yes. And and how did that work out? The lawyer that I had at the time wasn't doing his job. He also, in his mind, thought I was guilty. He kept telling me to take a plea bargain from day one. And I persisted, no, nah, I'm not taking no plea bargain. Finally, a few times in court, and the mother was convincing, like it was sad that what happened to her daughter, yes, I agree. Mm -hmm. Having the wrong person, though, um, my lawyer told me at the time, if you don't take a plea bargain, I can get you two years. And if you don't take the plea bargain, you're going to end up with 10, 12, even 14 years in jail. Can't imagine. At the time, at the time I was very scared, and I didn't yeah. want to do that time, so I was caught in a rock and a hard place. So you got a lawyer who's not doing his job. You've got the police who are intimidating. You've got a 10, 12, maybe 14-year prison sentence dangling in, your, in front of you, and yeah. nobody seems to be interested in whether or not you're innocent. And uh, so the Crown comes along and offers you a plea bargain. Yes. Finally, because um, I was in jail for 10 months, dead time while this case or this court process was being processed, I just got fed up and I just said, take the deal. You know, just get it over with because I don't even care no more. You know, whatever. But now I look at it and I look back on it. I should have never done that. When was this, uh, Anthony? What 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 year was this? What's going on? Not sure. It was a prelim, a preliminary hearing at the time. Okay. Um. She took the stand, and the way I looked at it, everybody was looking at me, looking like I was like a little, 
you know, like I don't even want to say it because I can't say it on the air, but lowest form of a human being. Mm -hmm. And yeah, everybody had me guilty through their eyes. And that, that minute I just said, forget it. Just take my, take my plea. Then I didn't want to do 10, 12 years. Yeah. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM 900 CHML. Anthony Hannemeyer, who spent time in prison on a plea bargain deal that he felt he had no option but to accept uh, on uh, for a crime he did not commit, which was ultimately committed by serial killer and serial rapist Paul Bernardo. So, so Anthony, uh, you accept the deal, you go to court, and the judge gives you how much time? They gave me two years last a day. And and from there, it's straight to straight to prison. Yes. What was that experience like? It was an eye opener. Um, yeah, um, a different world. <laughs> uh, yeah, a very different world, um, especially for a charge where I was charged with break enter assault and attempted rape of a fifteen year old. So. You were threatened. Life, life every day in there was pretty much my back against the wall. No, we don't. I mean, how can you? How do you live that way? And particularly when you know you didn't do it. And there's no point in prison saying, "I didn't do it," because everybody's going to say that. Everybody does say it. <laughs> so yeah, it is no point. Um, yeah, I've been in fights in there. So yeah, it was it's something I never ever want to do again. Mm-hmm. How did uh, how did it all change? When did they come to the conclusion, the realization that it wasn't you, and they needed to let you go? And did they uh, apologize? Paul Bernardo was doing some confessions through an interview, and came across the charge that I was charged with, saying how he broke into a house in Scarborough and whatnot and cops asked him a few questions and they he also told them that he stole a license plate that said car car because he wanted it for carla homoka which was key evidence that was never brought to the news or light or any information was leaked so the only person that would know that would be the person who did it mm-hmm. also gave the layout of the house um, everything and described in detail what happened. I was actually working on a roof when um, Edward Sapiano uh, gave me a call and told me about it and told me that Paul Bernardo confessed to it and that I would, was going to be exonerated and or they're going to start the process of exonerating my name. And you, at that point, had done over t- 10 months, and you'd been paroled. Yeah, I did 10 months that time. I got two years less a day. I did eight months of my sentence, and I got parole. What do, what do you want to say about Canada's justice system? You've been, uh, you've been exposed to it in, the, in, a, in a manner which is not supposed to happen, which they assure us does not happen. What needs to be said? Uh, the justice system needs to have a very good look looking at it needs to pull up and actually do their jobs um, and stop putting innocent people away 
Um, you know, just because they have a name and a hat, they can't run with it. And that's what it seems to be. As soon as they pull the name out of a hat, they take it and run with it. Like, they had no hard evidence of me even being there. But they, they had your name and they were, as you say, they were running with it and, and you had no choices, no options. Nobody was listening to you. No. Um, the very biggest key evidence that was there was I had long hair and Paul Bernardo had short hair. Um, I still had the long hair when I was in court, so it wasn't cut, nothing. So there was the biggest key evidence there. It's got to be an absolutely total help, totally helpless feeling, totally helpless. It is. You know, that, it, it, you're supposed to have legal representation. You're supposed to have. You're innocent until you're proven guilty. You're not guilty because somebody just, you know, mentioned your name to a to a to a police officer from a from a private parental investigation. Did they did they compensate you at all? Yeah, they compensated me, um, not as much as I wanted or what we were going for, but it's not even basically really even an apology. It's basically a slap in the face, really. And how are you now? How, how does this does this uh, follow you around this situation today? It'll, it'll always follow me around because the biggest key thing I think is if somebody sees me and they recognize me. It's not going to be, oh, there's Anthony. It's going to be, oh, there's that guy from Paul Bernardo. So yeah. my name's going to always be linked to that guy. Yeah. I think you're a very brave guy. And I think what you're doing is going to help other people who are in the same position that you're in, or maybe. And maybe it'll make some uh, police officers sit up and take note, and investigators and crown attorneys and lawyers. I think it takes a lot of guts to do what you're doing. Anthony, thank you so much for, for talking to us today and wish you all the very best going forward. Thanks, Roy. You're welcome. Take care. Okay. Anthony Hannemeyer takes a lot of guts. He really does. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I've been, for the last almost a year, speaking with uh, Gord Bibby and Bernice Thomas in British Columbia. Bernice is the um, sister of Robert Hall, and Gord is Robert Hall's cousin. Mr. Hall and Mr. John Ridsdale were captives of Abu Sayyaf, the Philippine Islamic terrorist group that's aligned with ISIS. And uh, they were kidnapped. They were abducted at a, at a marina, and um, they were killed, as you know, and they were beheaded. And... Mr. Trudeau had opportunity to intervene, our prime minister, and uh, did not. I'm going to play you a little something of what Mr. Trudeau said about this case last year. But first, I want to talk to Gord because Mr. Trudeau, as you know, was in the Philippines about a week ago. And uh, he spoke with uh, Duterte, the, the prime minister of the Philippines, and apparently, the, according to Mr. Trudeau, the, he asked a question about the kidnappers of um, Robert Hall and John Ridsdale. And Gord, when I when I uh, when I watched um, Justin Trudeau on on Global News, I, it, it, 
was I don't want to use the word indifferent. It was worse than indifferent. It was just it just was bland and just bland. And he said words to the effect that, oh, uh, he knew that the kidnappers, most of them had been killed. And he didn't he didn't remember. It seemed like the prime minister didn't remember the name of your cousin and didn't remember the name of Mr. Ridsdale either. It was it was a very weakened and concerning performance. Uh, it's maddening, isn't it, Roy? I'm reduced to yelling at the TV now. <laughs> yeah. I used to uh, I used to criticize people who did that when I was younger, but uh, it, it is. I mean, we are. You know, I wish I could report that that we have more information that we're closer to uh, uh, getting petition six ninety six uh, through. Uh, into law, uh, we're not. We're, we're we're no further ahead than we were the last time I I spoke to you, and and it is maddening, and, and it it just brings back all these all the horror, all the memories when you see the the prime minister uh, gallivanting around uh, uh, the Philippines, and and as you say, seemingly indifferent to uh, to what to what he committed. I mean, he committed back in June of 2016. That uh, that his government would pursue those responsible, uh, however long it takes, and and we've seen no evidence of that. Absolutely no evidence at all. And and you and I and uh, Benice have talked about this. I also received a, an email from another of your cousins, uh, which was very difficult to read because you can just read the pain that your family has experienced, continues to experience. And a prime minister who said he would do everything that he possibly could, and he would bring these people to justice. And what does he do? He ends up speaking with the uh, the uh, volatile president of uh, of the Philippines, and he says, "Oh, the information is most of them have been killed." That's not enough. That's not doing your job. That's not fulfilling your commitment to your family or the Ridsdale family. No, if if he had been following this case as he promised he would, uh, he wouldn't have had to ask Duterte that. That's question. right. He, he would know. He would know that information. So it's just, you know, we, we had so much, so much hope back when, uh, when Bob was, was held captive that, that, you know, that things were happening behind the scenes and that he would eventually be released. And as it turns out, we, we were all told to be quiet, uh, not to say anything, not to do any social media chatter. And and we were hopeful. Well, that means stuff stuff is happening. Stuff is happening behind the scenes. We know now that Diddley was happening behind the scenes, and 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 so that's that's part of the pain of of this. The the horror, the horrific manner in which Bob was murdered, as well as John John Ridstall. And and so we're dealing with that. We're dealing with uh, we're dealing with the fact that the government. As you say, seems indifferent about uh, you know following through on this case, and I've got I'll, I'll tell you, uh, Roy. After that uh, bit on uh, TV with the prime minister, uh, the family social media was <laughs> uh, I, I can't even repeat some of the things that were going on. But uh, we've got people seeking psychiatric help. Uh, in the family, uh, because they just have, they're just having a difficult time dealing with this. So it, it's there's no closure. There's absolutely no closure right no. now. I want you to listen, uh, Gord, to about 60 seconds of what Mr. Trudeau said to national media at the end of 2016 
about what his greatest regret of 2016 is. Here's what he said. But if I had to pick a low point for me personally uh, last year, uh, it was the deaths of two Canadians um, by the Abu Sayyaf group in, uh, in the Philippines, which was something that uh, obviously was um, personally difficult uh, for me. Uh, as I had uh, the responsibility for uh, directing and, and um, articulating the Canadian position, uh, but also the opportunity and the uh, responsibility to speak with their families. Uh, I think uh, reflecting on the fact that we live in a very dangerous world uh, and uh, the responsibility that any government has uh, to keep its citizens safe now and in the future uh, needs to be top of mind and any time um, situations come up in which uh, we lose lives like that uh, it's going to be difficult for any leader so i sounded sincere but he said nothing well and i, and I have to keep myself from yelling into the phone um it, yeah, uh, you know, if, if it was sincere, then for gosh sakes, uh, you know, he, he should he should make amends. He should offer apologies. Yeah. He should he should be in touch with the family, and there's been no contact at all. Because it sounds like he said he was trying to say that he one of his responsibilities was to stay in touch with the family, and by saying that, it almost sounds good like he's saying I was in touch with them, doesn't it? Uh, well, uh... But I know he wasn't, but... He wasn't, no. No, no. So his, his words certainly don't, don't echo his actions. Yeah. He's, uh, he's, uh, you know, he, I, I think his low point this year was probably, uh, the death of Gord Downey. He seemed very, very overcome by that. Mm -hmm. Uh, but he's, uh, I guess he's put the, uh, he's put the Hall Ridstall situation sort of, uh, off his desk, and, uh, here we are, family still uh, still coping with, with no answers. When you said that you had to stop yourself from screaming into the phone after you heard what I played for you, what was it that he said that made you feel that way? Well, I guess it's, it's just, as you say, he, he sounded sincere from mm -hmm. his statements, but th those haven't been translated into into actions. They they haven't materialized into... into uh, into uh, and I go back to his his response in uh, Manila recently. It's just you know it's just oh yeah well uh, you know he, he just makes a statement. His uh, uh, it's just very uh, I just take anything he says now as as being very insincere. Uh, the the, f the fact is the federal government of Canada had options had opportunities. The the Philippine government. Uh, was was ready to assist in in most any way they could, from what I understand. And uh, the final word was, um, I don't know if it was Mr. Trudeau's, but the Philippine government was ready to assist in trying to save and rescue your cousin and Mr. Ridsdale, but but there was no such action. There was no such military action took place. No ransom was paid. You weren't asking for that. No military action took place. They didn't contact you except to tell you to be quiet. So what were they doing? Well, 
exactly. I mean, it's 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 almost laughable that uh, uh, that I, you know, I honestly think. I honestly think that uh, that he and perhaps some of his ministers realize that they totally bungled this, and they're just trying to, you know, hope it goes away. Mm-hmm. And I can certainly tell you it is not going to go away. Uh, the, the family is very committed to seeing this through. Uh, we did make a positive step by trying to get uh, some legislation introduced with regards to how to handle future hostage taking so that uh, this these situations don't reoccur and uh, we've really heard nothing more on that you're listening to the roy green show weekends from two to five on am 900 chml talking about the uh the murder of his cousin and the response from the federal government one of the uh, one of the options they had gord was uh, petition 696 remind us what that was about how about putting Gord on the air. Go ahead, Gord. Oh, there we are. Yep. Uh, basically, Roy, it was a, a, a contingency plan that, that could be uh, initiated immediately, which uh, would involve international experts in uh, uh, in a specialized arena of, of, of dealing with uh, organizations engaged in kidnapping uh, and uh, also keeping the families of kidnapped victims informed about government actions, um, and uh, it's uh, of course it's much more detailed than that. But that, right. that's uh, just just to sum up, that's basically what we proposed. And, and that's and, uh, and that's looking know, ahead. We, we we have we have in Canada uh, an elite team called JTF two. Right. And you know you you would think that in a situation like this, this is when that team would be deployed. Quite possibly, yeah. And we've talked to the commander of the former commander of JTF2 quite regularly on the show. Gord, we'll talk again, 696, look it up, folks, and and let's stay on this case because the family's staying with it. Thank you, Gord, for the time. All the best to your family. Thank you, Roy. Bye-bye. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.